Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Were I to select an italicized quote to appear at the beginning of Flannery O'Connor's story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, it might be this from George MacDonald. Lest it should be possible that any unchildlike soul might in arrogance and ignorance think to stand upon his rights against God and demand of him this or that after the will of the flesh, I will lay before such a possible one some of the things to which he has a right. He has a claim to be compelled to repent, to be hedged in on every side, to have one after another of the strong, sharp-toothed sheepdogs of the great shepherd sent after him to thwart him in every desire, foil him in every plan, frustrate him in any hope, until he come to see at length that nothing will ease his pain, nothing make life a thing worth having, but the presence of the living God within him. When she died, Thomas Merton said of Flannery O'Connor that while other people were comparing her to Hemingway, he thought she should be compared to Sophocles. I want to summarize the story we'll talk about today and then quote to you from Flannery O'Connor, a couple of Flannery O'Connor's letters to get a feel for her personality. Well, here's the, the story that she tells in the briefest outlines. There's a family with uh, two parents, three children, and a grandmother, and they decide to go on a vacation to Florida. The grandmother, who has a knack for, tr- for getting her own way in uh, by using subtle devices, uh, really wants to go to East Tennessee. She does not prevail uh, in uh, her desire to go to Tennessee, so they uh, set out for Florida. But in trying to talk them into going to Tennessee instead of Florida, she uh, points out that the newspaper has recorded that a an escaped criminal who calls himself the misfit, is cutting a very wide swath through South Georgia on his way to Florida, and she says, why would we want to be in the same vicinity with him? Uh, But anyway, the next morning they start off, and um, they talk of this and that, and the the grandmother's a very garrulous person pointing out things and talking to the kids and so on. Um, They seem to have a lot of sort of low-level contempt for her, but in any case, they stop once for lunch, She tells a story or two. Uh, She remembers an old plantation uh, that she knew when she was young, knew of it when she was young, and she convinces by uh, subtle devices, she convinces her son to turn down this dirt road to find it. Down the dirt road, she remembers that it wasn't in Georgia. After all, it was in Tennessee, and her foot lurches when she realizes that. She knocks over the little basket in which she was hiding her her cat, uh, her son didn't want to bring a cat along, but uh, she did anyway, and the cat jumps up, lands on the driver's neck, the car goes off the road, rolls over once and is in a ditch, and uh, slowly but surely the three escaped convicts roll up, uh, walk down the hill, uh, and uh, in a exchange of conversation, kill everybody. Somebody came to class on Tuesday night. You know, the story begins by saying she, uh, the grandmother rattled the newspaper at the bald head of Bailey, who was le- reading the sports page, right? Somebody came to the Tuesday night session in Santa Rosa. 
rattling this copy of the story, <laughs> saying, what'd you make us read this for? <laughs> well, let me read to you from a couple of Flannery O'Connor's letters. You may or may not know about Flannery O'Connor. She suffered, uh, she died early in her 30s, late 30s. She's by almost everybody's uh, estimation a a brilliant literary figure. She suffered with lupus uh, her whole adult life, but she was a tough one, I want to tell you, and <laughs> a wonderful one. And I hope you can get that from the, just, I just picked out two letters. They're both written in 1955, uh, one to a fellow novelist. She said, I certainly am glad you like the story. She apparently sent stories off and got a, 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 a raving reply. I certainly am glad you like the stories because now I feel it's not bad that I like them so much. The truth is, I like them better than anybody. And I read them over and over and laugh and laugh, then get embarrassed when I remember I was the one who wrote them. <laughs> I'm going to New York on the 30th to be, if you please, interviewed by Mr. Harvey Brett on the program he is starting up over NBC TV. Do you reckon this is going to corrupt me? I already feel like a combination of Monsignor Sheen and Gorgeous George. Everybody who has read Wiseblood thinks I'm a hillbilly nihilist, whereas I would like to create the impression over the television that I'm a hillbilly Thomist. But I will probably not be able to think of anything to say to Mr. Harvey Brett but, huh, and I don't know. That's spelled A-H-D-U-N-N-O. When I get back, I'll probably have to spend three months day and night in the chicken pen to counteract these evil influences. She lived on a little farm in rural Georgia with her mother and raised all kinds of animals. Uh, she says she, she describes herself as a hillbilly Thomas, talking, speaking of Thomas Aquinas. Now, Thomas Aquinas was the, uh, the man who provided the, the Middle Ages with the great theological synthesis. And uh, I think uh, if, if uh, Merton can be so bold as to describe her as one who must be compared to uh, Sophocles, I think we can take her playful description of herself as a hillbilly uh, Thomas uh, more to heart. One more quote from a letter. Uh, she wrote to a friend, Recently I talked in Macon, Macon, Georgia. Nobody had ever heard tell of me, of course. And it was announced in the paper next day that I was a writer of the realistic school. I presume the lady came to this conclusion from looking at the cover on the drugstore edition of Wiseblood. Wiseblood was her first novel, which was quite popular. In a few weeks, I'm going to talk to some other ladies in Macon, and I'm going to clear up that detail. I'm interested in making up a good case for distortion as I am coming to believe it is the only way to make people see. Now, I read that to a purpose because it seems when you read these stories that she is dealing with a, uh, realistically, more or less realistically, with a very small, tiny, marginal, and insignificant uh, subculture, namely... Uh, 
rural, southern, illiterate, fundamentalist, etc. But she isn't. You know, Goethe said, uh, if you want to write universal literature, for God's sakes, don't set out to write universal literature. Set, find your setting, your own local environment, and find what is universal in it. And she has taken a very local environment indeed and uh, raised questions that have to do, at the very least, with uh, the dilemma facing modern Western civilization and, 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 the, the, and particularly the dilemma uh, faced or refused to be faced by uh, the Christian movement in the modern world. But she does it with distortion because she says it's the only way, I'm coming to believe it's the only way to make people see, which reminded me of a passage in a Donald Finkel poem having to do with Flannery O'Connor's strategy. Finkel says, the poem makes truth a little more disturbing, like a good bra. Well, Flannery O'Connor is trying to make the truth a little more disturbing by telling a story like the one that we're, we're looking at today. But it is a universal truth she's trying to get at. A good man is hard to find, says the story, the title of the story. And we've already laid out the, the, uh, the plot, or the, got the plot out of the way. You know, Ian Forrester says the plot's the raw meat, he throws the guard dogs so you can get into the house. So that's out of our way, and now we can get on with what Flannery O'Connor is trying to do for us. So there they are deciding where, which way to go on their vacation. Well, it's already been decided, but the grandmother's trying to, uh, to uh, reverse the decision. But what we're shown in the first scene is the, is the uh, cultural containment. The, the father has his face in the orange sports section of the journal. And the children are sitting on the floor reading the funny papers. And uh, the grandmother is rattling the front page of the paper, what appears to be the front page of the paper, over the bald head of the father. But it, I think that begins by showing us the, the, the boundary, the, con the consciousness boundaries, the sports page, the funny papers, um, a kind of shell of um, a horizon of awareness. The two children, there are three children. One is a, an infant, so the only two really play a part in the story. And the two children are John Wesley and his slightly younger sister, June Starr. Flannery O'Connor has telescoped uh, Western cultural process into a very sh short space here. So calibrate, if you will, the distance between uh, a cultural environment which would name a child John Wesley. John Wesley was the, was the founder of uh, Methodism, which broke uh, with the Anglican Church uh, at a certain point. So the cultural... Uh, terrain covered by a, a cultural environment which would call a child John Wesley 
And I, less than two years later, call another child June Star. You'd think that the the second one was was born in the 80s in California, and and the first one, you see. I think I think it's interesting already what you you see there, what's happening. Uh, and and this story is in many ways about the the uh, disintegration of uh, the understanding of the Christian movement, self-understanding of the Christian movement. And we'll see as the story goes along that June Starr has uh, even less of an interest or comprehension of anything that might touch on on the Christian mysteries than her her brother. He he knows enough about it to be kind of amused or irritated by it, but for her it's just nothing. The cat that goes in the car is is named Pity Singh. And uh, that is a um, is the word "pretty thing" said by an infant. In other words, it's the kind of name that uh, attaches to a, a a pet when a small child begins to call this cat "pretty thing," and it becomes pretty pretty soon "pity thing." It plays a very important role later on in the story, and so I just want to take a little minute to uh, to talk about uh, the problem presented by Pity Singh. The problem is sentimentality. Pretty Thing being a piece of sentimentality, and the fact that it degenerates into the infantile version of it being a compounded problem of sentimentality. And sentimentality is a perversion of a basic Christian staple, namely compassion. There is an enormous difference between sentimentality and compassion, and uh, that difference will be alluded to several times as the story unfolds. Sentimentality is the willingness to believe some cuddly little myth that allows us to have the illusion of emotional existence while not interrupting the scheduled programming. And O'Connor is drawing attention to an alliance between sentimentality and nostalgia as the cheap imitations of Christian compassion and religious longing. But there's more, something more sinister to sentimentality than that. The mind that is capable of attributing pure innocence, pity seeing, to an animal, is the same mind that is capable of attributing pure guilt to another creature, the misfit. Nostalgic sentimentality provides a kind of emotional novocaine capable of camouflaging cruel indifference or worse. Remember the two lines in the Anthony Heck poem, The Feast of Stephen, that I quoted when we were talking about the uh, death of Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles? The two lines are these. Think of the Strom of Tilong's commandant, that means the commander of the stormtrooper, Think of the Strom of Tilong's commandant who loves Beethoven and collects Degas. Sentimentality and nostalgia can provide a kind of emotional novocaine uh, 
under the influence of which we can uh, tolerate and even participate in uh, in a very cruel operation. So all of that I'm, I, I draw from just the name of this cat uh, because I think it says something already about a a uh, the way in which uh, the the Christian message is being avoided. We have a little reference here to the way that the grandmother is dressed. I just want to call attention to it because it'll uh, one feature of it will play an uh, important part in a minute. The grandmother had on a navy blue straw ha- navy blue straw sailor hat with a bunch of white violets on the brim and a navy blue dress with a small white dot in the print. In case of an accident, anyone seeing her dead on the highway would know at once that she was a lady. So she dressed so that um, if you bet, <laughs> so she dressed so that if they had a wreck, uh, she would be recognized as a lady. Well, we'll keep that in mind, particularly the hat. Now. To pick up on this, uh, the, the issue raised by uh, pity sing and uh, nostalgia and sentimentality and so on, uh, there is the following little give and take uh, as they're driving along. Let's go through Georgia fast so we won't have to look at it much, John Wesley said. If I were a little boy, said the grandmother, I wouldn't talk about my native state that way. Tennessee has the mountains and Georgia has the hills. Tennessee is just a hillbilly dumping ground, John Wesley said, and Georgia is a lousy state too. You said it, Jim Starr said. In my time, said the grandmother, folding her thin veiled fingers, children were more respectful of their native states and their parents and everything else. People did right then. Okay. Now we're talking about native states. We're talking about native states. Uh, the the nostalgia for the native states here. The next thing she says is, "Oh, look at the cute little pickaninny." which is what whites used to call little black children. Oh, look at the cute little pickaninny, she said, and pointed to a Negro child standing in the door of a shack. Wouldn't that make a picture now? She asked, and they all turned and looked at the little Negro out of the back window. He waved. Notice, wouldn't that make a cute little picture? Look at that little pickaninny. Sentimentality. Nostalgia for the native states. Only watch this. He didn't have any britches on, June Star said. <laughs> he didn't have his fig leaf on. The native state. He probably don't have any, the grandmother explained. Little niggers in the country don't have things like we do. If I could paint, I'd paint that picture, she said. The children exchanged comic books. Now, isn't that something? That's good writing. I, you see... They don't have. They just don't have clothes like we do. If I could paint, I'd paint that picture. It's a lovely picture. Sentimental, but anything but compassionate. Well, just notice what 
sentimentality and nostalgia do. They camouf they 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 pass themselves off for something which is the opposite of what they really are. And so when she says, isn't that a cute little scene and wouldn't I like to paint it, uh, she assures herself that uh, she's a thoughtful, uh, compassionate, uh, sensitive woman. When in fact she has missed the whole point. They next pass a large cotton field with five or six graves in the middle of it. And the grandmother says, look at that graveyard. It belonged to a plantation. Where's the plantation, John Wesley asked. Gone with the wind. Gone with the wind. A little reminder now that the that nostalgia is not going to, uh, is no substitute for religious longing. It is gone with the wind. And the grandmother says, well, look, if you'll settle down, I'll tell you a story. And, of course, the story is a piece of nostalgia because that's, that's where she is. She said once when she was a maiden lady, she had been courted by Mr. Edgar Atkins Teagarden from Jasper, Georgia. She said he was a very good-looking man and a gentleman and that he brought her a watermelon every Saturday afternoon with his initials cut in it, E-A-T. Well, one Saturday, she said, Mr. Teagarden brought the watermelon, and there was nobody at home, and he left it on the front porch and returned in his buggy to, to Jasper. But she never got the watermelon because, she said, a nigger boy ate it when he saw the initials E-A-T. The story tickled John Wesley's funny bone. And he giggled and giggled, but June Starr didn't think it was any good. Well, now the reason he giggled and giggled is because there's just enough uh, uh, vestigial biblical sensibility in, John, in, a, in a kid named John Wesley to uh, react to the fact that a biblical story is being told. June Starr it, it has, has passed uh, out of the influence of that, uh, of that uh, uh, tradition, so she didn't get it at all. But I want to I want to try to have us get it a little in a little more detail. By the way, I'm I'm being I'm uh, in, being aggressively interpretive of this story, not because I approve of that sort of thing. I don't really, but because um, I want us to we, we want not only to be moved by the story, but to be to, to be informed about it. Uh, this man was from Jasper, Georgia. What's being explored here is the withering of religious sensibilities and the attenuating of a religious tradition. We find out that Mr. Edgar Atkins Teagarden was from Jasper, Georgia. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, it says the following. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as a crystal. The wall of the city was made of pure jasper. So the heavenly Jerusalem, Jasper is 
the heavenly Jerusalem. And this man is coming to visit her from Jasper. He's coming in a buggy, and he goes back in a buggy. Uh, the beginning of the prophet Ezekiel, the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, is the prophet uh, recording a vision and a call. And the prophet is writing out of his exile in Babylon. So uh, he's conscious of his exile. Now, if you're conscious of your exile, uh, you have certain experiences at a deeper level of your being than you would have those same experiences were you not conscious of your exile. So what we have here is two exile conditions in which, uh, in one of which, the person is conscious of the exile and the other which the person is not. Ezekiel was conscious of his exile. Here's his experience. I looked and a stormy wind blew from the north, a great cloud of light around it, a fire from which flashes of lightning darted, and in the center a sheen like bronze at the heart of the fire. And what he saw was the chariot of Yahweh, this great, uh, awesome vehicle with with beasts and wings and great wheels, comes rolling out of, this, out of the sky, right? I heard the noise of the four beast wings as they moved. It sounded like the roaring of mighty waters, like the voice of the Almighty. It sounded like the roaring of mighty waters. You remember that uh, Mark Twain said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between, a li between lightning and a lightning bug? Well, what's being recorded here is the difference between the sound of mighty water and a watermelon. This man who comes out of Jasper, the one who doesn't realize she's exiled, recognizes in him someone who is handsome and a gentleman. Here's how Ezekiel recognized him. He sees the throne, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. So there's the difference between the two appraisals of who this is coming out of Jasper. <clears throat> the man in, uh, coming from Jasper delivered uh, on the Sabbath, by the way, on Saturday, a watermelon on which it said E-A-T, his initials. Here's what Ezekiel says. This one said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. I looked up and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me on both sides of it were written the words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, and then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. 
she has the the Ezekiel experience, but she doesn't know that she's in exile, so it doesn't register. It's simply a handsome gentleman coming from Jasper and leaving every Saturday a watermelon that says, eat. And one day he comes and there's nobody there. And she says, I never got the watermelon because a nigger boy ate it when he saw the initials E-A-T. And this, of course, is what always happens. The word, the word Hebrew comes from a, an Egyptian source which meant nigger, if you'll allow me that interpretation. It meant uh, wetback. It meant something like uh, the – it was a term of uh, derision for the, for the uh, alien workforce. And it is the victims of history who are in a position to understand what's going on and who are in a position to hear the call and respond to it. So finally, this story ends with a little nigger boy getting that watermelon. It reminds me of um, what, Her what Howard Thurman said. By some amazing but vastly creative spiritual insight, the slave undertook the redemption of a religion that the master had profaned in his midst. Because we don't think we're exiled. So we don't get the Ezekiel version. We get the grandmother's version. I want to spend a little time uh, on this next scene because I think it is the most so it's the most conscious uh, attempt on O'Connor's part in this story to um, give a picture of the church. They're driving along and they, it's time for lunch. See, it's time to uh, break bread. And they stop at a place called the Tower. And they stop for barbecue sandwiches. The Tower was a part stucco, part wood filling station and dance hall set in a clearing outside Timothy. Now that's a mouthful. <laughs> and we're visiting the, the what has what is the really the parody of the church, uh, but in a way a symbol of what it has become or is becoming. The tower was a part stucco, part wood. Obviously, we're talking here the Tower of Babel because uh, the, I mean, it's clear that reference. The Tower of Babel was part brick and part, by, uh, part uh, bitumen, pitch. So the story says it was, it was made from brick and bitumen. It mentions its two structural pieces, part stucco and part wood, a combination filling station and dance hall. Now, just ponder it for a second, friend. A combination filling station and dance hall is what the church has become. Set in a clearing outside of Timothy. Now, the two letters of Timothy in the New Testament, there is no Timothy, Georgia. The, what's going on in the two letters of Timothy is a, is a polemic against Gnosticism, against and other, what, what Timothy is trying to uh, insist upon 
is that you can't just go off in any direction. You have to be grounded in some kind of tradition, in some kind of doctrine, in some in something that will keep you from uh, from from floating away and missing the whole point. And that seemed to be uh, the early church that came to regard Gnosticism as as that. And there's a polemic against Gnosticism. So what Timothy is saying is uh, there's got to be some structure to this thing. But if, so when Flannery O'Connor says this is a, this place called the Tower was outside Timothy, she's talking about something that's outside of that of, of that uh, careful doctrinal configuration of what is involved in the Christian proclamation. But more than that, I think, let me just read to you two passages, one from 1 Timothy, one from 2, to give a feel for, for what might, what really relates to the story that unfolds here. This is from 1 Timothy. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these, and turn to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now keep that in mind as we go back and listen to the proprietor of this place and the grandmother carry on their conversation. In Second Timothy it says, But mark this, There will be terrible times in the last days, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. So those are the two... That, that and the insistence that there be some kind of doctrinal structure is, is what I think O'Connor is talking about when she says Timothy. And now she's saying this tower is outside Timothy. You know from the, to the, uh, the uh, Tower of Babel story, the purpose, remember the purpose of building the tower, uh, in the Genesis story it says, let us build ourselves a town and a tower with its top reaching heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered and forgotten. Let me go back. The tower was a part stucco, part wood filling station and dance hall set in the clearing outside of Timothy. A fat man named Red Sammy Butts ran it, and there were signs stuck here and there on the building and for miles up and down the highway saying, Try Red Sammy's famous barbecue. None like famous Red Sam's. Red Sammy's. Red Sam, the fat boy with the happy laugh. A veteran. Red Sammy's your man. Let's build a tower so that we can make a name for ourselves, so that we will not be scattered. Once outside of Timothy, the the problem endemic to all of us, which is the the, the uh, the, the, somehow the concern that our existence is not is not sufficiently ontological to to be to just just to have worth. Once outside of Timothy, that that uh, concern grows all out of bounds, and so let's do something 
to make a name for ourselves. Red Sammy. None like famous Red Sammies. Red Sam, the fat boy with a happy laugh. A veteran, I love that. A veteran. Red Sammy's your man. <laughs> it's brilliant that she said a veteran. Because it just shows this, you know, just make any association, you see. Affiliate with anything that will somehow enhance this this project of, of, of uh, you know, personal aggrandizement. <laughs> Whatever it takes. You know... She, the environment she's uh, speaking from is one in which uh, the uh, in which the tent revivalist form of uh, Christianity played a very prominent role. So uh, people in that environment would have would have recognized her metaphor here as a metaphor of the church quicker than. Uh, than perhaps we do, but it's clearly that's what she's talking about. Uh, in other words, the sign on the the, the the sign on the door, not quite as bad, but almost as bad as the one downstairs got my name on it, which says, you know, who's preaching on Sunday and what he's preaching on. That's really what's going. See, that's the that's the headline. That's who's preaching and what they're preaching on. So that's what this is all about, seems to me. Inside the tower was a long dark room with a counter at one end and tables at the other and a dance space in the middle. So there's another general uh, layout of a church. And it has a Nickelodeon because every Tower of Babel needs some kind of form of the confusion of language. And in this story, it's the Nickelodeon. You put your dime in and press your button and out comes whatever it was. And the grandmother plays, uh, obviously, the Tennessee Waltz. And since she can't get anybody to dance with her, she swayed her head from side to side and pretended she was dancing in her chair. And that, again, has a kind of tent revivalist uh, feel to it. The, a, a Pentecostal revival in the, in the old rural, rural South. June Star, remember June Star is the uh, is the Aquarian in this crowd. June Star said, play something she could tap to. So the children's mother put in another dime and played a fast number, and June Star stepped out onto the dance floor and did her tap routine. Ain't she cute, Red Sammy's wife said, leaning over the counter. Would you like to come and be my little girl? No, I certainly wouldn't, June Star said. I wouldn't live in a broken-down place like this for a million bucks. She ran back. <laughs> Ain't she cute, the woman repeated, stretching her mouth politely. <laughs> now, see, June Star doesn't want to have anything to do with this, this operation. She's the one that's outside of the Christian dispensation. So Red Sam comes in, and he and the grandmother carry on a little conversation about uh, how, how the times are. These days, you don't know who to trust, he said. Ain't that the truth? People are certainly not nice like they used to be, said the grandmother. And then his wife said, isn't a soul in this green world of gods that you can trust? And I don't count nobody out of that. Not nobody, she repeated, looking at Red Sammy. Now... Just notice for a second the 
tense. There's a little moment of of tension here uh, between Red Sammy and his wife. Kind of glaring, cutting remark. We humans have a instinct. We know instinctively uh, how to how to get past that that place without dealing with it. And the grandmother does it. She says, Did you read about that criminal, the misfit that's escaped? said the grandmother. And then everything turns to the misfit. So all of that, which was for a moment there directed at each other, this the pent-up uh, aggression, resentment, dissatisfaction addressed at each other, and the grandmother instinctively knows that she can lighten that conversation if she just provi- provides everybody with a common object of contempt, which will restore a, 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 a civility to this conversation. And that's it's a, it's a miniature version of how it all happens. And so they get off on the misfit there for a while. A good man is hard to find, Red Sammy said. Everything is getting terrible. I remember the day you could go off and leave your screen door unlatched. Not no more. Outside of Tombsboro, the the grandmother woke up. Now, there is a Tombsboro, but it has only one B in it. T-O-O-M-S-B-O-R-O. But the one in this story has two. Tombsboro. So we don't miss the point. Outside of Tombsboro, she woke up and recalled an old plantation she had visited in this neighborhood once when she was a young lady. She said the house had six white columns across the front and that there was an avenue of oaks leading up to it and two little wooden trellis arbors on either side in front where you sat down with your suitor after a stroll in the garden. And she knew where exactly where to turn off to go to. Again, the, the basic architectural structure is a church. The aisle going up the middle, the great uh, backdrop and two side altars. And also a kind of Garden of Eden story where you stroll in the garden with your, with your suitor and, uh, and rest yourself. So it's, all, it's religion as nostalgia. And uh, all blurred in the way that nostalgia blurs all things together. And somehow what ought to be a, some, what ought to be religious longing is this vague uh, collage of several uh, pieces of nostalgia thrown together, and, and uh, that's what's calling. That's what seems to be calling. And then the horrible thought that it wasn't in Georgia but Tennessee where she'd seen that plantation. She kicks over the, the uh, basket with the cat. The cat jumps out lands on the neck of, of her son, the driver, and they roll off the side of the road uh, into, the, into the, uh, the, the gully next to the road. And the, and the kids are absolutely ecstatic. We've had an accident. We've had an accident, they said, with a frenzy of delight. And I... You see... The possibility that something might break into this, to this routine that is that has us enclosed in it, is a delicious possibility. 
So the kids are suddenly feeling as though something is finally happening. Something is finally breaking in on this thing. And they say, guess what? We had an accident. But then they seem to realize that it wasn't enough of an accident to really break in on things. But nobody's killed, June Starr said with disappointment. It's not enough of an accident to really break into that shell because nobody is dealing with death. They still haven't had to deal with death. And so it's not really going to break through, is it? And it's at that point that the, the car on the road above starts slowly driving forward, toward them. It is a big, black, battered, curse-like automobile. So the accident didn't provide the confrontation with death that might have shattered that shell. But here comes something that will. A big, black, battered, hearse-like automobile. This is the apocalyptic moment. The driver looked down with a steady, expressionless gaze to where they were sitting and didn't speak. Then he turned his head and muttered something to the other two and they got out. One was a fat boy in black trousers and a red sweatshirt with a silver stallion embossed on the front of it. I want to try to locate uh, the, the echo here. In the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, there are, there are the, uh, the horsemen. And the horsemen in Zechariah are uh, the forces that patrol the world benevolently. That is to say, they are, they are the forces of uh, official latent violence that keep unofficial, random, and spontaneous violence from erupting. So they are regarded as positive forces patrolling the world. In the book of Revelation, those same forces are the forces of wholesale destruction. And the question, of course, is what has happened between Zechariah and the book of Revelation, and what has happened is the crucifixion and everything that it reveals about the human condition. So that those forces become recognizably destructive forces. Here's what the book of Revelation says about the four horsemen. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with the voice of thunder, come. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, a weapon. And a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And the third seal is opened and a rider comes out on a black horse and he has uh, uh, scales in his hands. And a, and a fourth horse, a pale horse, comes out and uh, his rider's name is Death and Hades followed him and so on and so forth. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What this story has is a fat boy in black trousers and a red sweatshirt with a silver stallion embossed on the front of it. 
But I think the echo is fairly clear that this is the apocalyptic moment when all of those forces are now outside of any control system. You see, what the crucifixion does and the revelation that flows from it is that it makes the the sacrificial mechanism for controlling violence, uh, it cripples the sacrificial mechanism for controlling and, di- and directing violence so that slowly but surely that violence which we tolerate becomes more and more uncontrollable because of the crucifixion. So uh, the, I'll speak of this in a, in a moment. So what I'm trying to say is I think there's an image here of of an apocalyptic uh, moment. The driver wore silver-rimmed spectacles that gave him a scholarly look. So he is something closer to evil itself. He's wearing a black hat and has a gun in case we, you know, trying to, in case we need a program. Uh, he's got a black hat and has a gun, so we know who he is. The grandmother had the peculiar feeling that the bespeckled man was someone she knew. His face was as familiar to her as if she had known him all her life, but she could not recall who he was. And this is wonderful. He says, I see you had a little spill. We turned over twice, said the grandmother. Once, he corrected. Oh, that's wonderful. I see you had a little fall. She said, well, we've turned over twice. And he said, no, once. Isn't that it? I mean, that just speaks volumes. To turn over, the word conversion means to turn over. And the grandmother, oh, we turned over twice. No, you didn't. Once or once, as he says. And this is where June Star pipes up. What are you... T- he tells him to, to, for the kids to step back because he, the kids bother him. What are you telling us what to do for, June Star asked. Behind them, a line of woods gaped like a dark open mouth. And this is where I see June Star as representing... I, I hesitate to use the word uh, humanism because I, for two reasons. Number one, it's, uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the whipping boy of the fundamentalist. And secondly, because I, I regard uh, genuine humanism as the, as a, uh, as the natural outgrowth of, of genuine uh, Christian sensibilities. But uh, the kind of humanism that, that, uh, we've, that sometimes carries that name... Uh, a kind of naive, a sort of naivete about the real situation, uh, not realizing how grave the situation really is. And Bailey, her son, the grandmother's son, says, we're in a predicament. And he's interrupted by the grandmother's shriek. You're the misfit, she said. I recognized you at once. Yes'm, the man said. But it would have been better for all of you, lady, if you hadn't have recognized me. Now this is very important, I think. Notice what the how he says the word, recognized me. 
I think we could put a, a W before that R and uh, get something communicated. She claims that at that at this moment, she claims this is the moment of revelation. She she says this is the moment when I recognize you. But he corrects her, though he doesn't realize he's correcting her. He says, no, ma'am, what you just did was, you did what everybody's always done to me. You recognized me. You participated in the recognizing of me that has been going on all my life. You pointed out that I'm a misfit. You think you recognize me, but in fact you recognized me. And at this point, the grandmother begins to try to administer a sacrament to the situation. The sacrament of forgiveness. It's very late in the game to be hauling in the sacrament. But she nodded her agreement when... Red Sammy Butts said, a good man is hard to find. And now she is having to try to find one in that wreck of humanity standing in front of her. And she can only find it if she can get him to find it. And so that's her project. And she's got to work on it because it has to do with saving her own neck. She says, I know you're a good man. You don't look a bit like you have common blood. I know you come from nice people. Yes, ma'am, he said. Finest people in the world. Talks about his mama, talks about his daddy. You shouldn't call yourself the misfit because I know you're a good man at heart. I appreciate that, lady, he says. And then he says to Bailey and his son, John Wesley, he said, would you two step over into the woods? The boys want to talk to you. The boys have something they want to ask you. Now, everybody knows at some level of their consciousness what that means. Everybody in the story knows what that means. But they choose not to consult that level of consciousness if they can, if they can uh, avoid it. Uh, but it's clear what that means. And Bailey says... Listen, we're in a terrible predicament. Nobody realizes what this is. And we just might as well attribute those words to Flannery O'Connor. That's what the story is about. Listen, we're in a terrible predicament. And nobody realizes what it is, except the person who is about to become the victim of it. And we've seen that in... in text after text after text that we have studied and in, and in you know, historical events that we've called attention to, the person who is suddenly, unexpectedly in the position of the victim has a clarity on the situation that eludes others. We're in a terrible predicament, he says, and he goes off to the woods. This next two sentences, the two sentences I'm about to read are great literature as far as I'm concerned. Remember the grandmother wore her nice dress and her nice little hat so that if she 
died, people would know that she was a lady. This represents being a lady. See, everything, it's all geared to being a lady, a proper lady. The grandmother reached up to adjust her hat brim as if she were going to the woods with him, but it came off in her hand. She stood staring at it, and after a second, she let it fall to the ground. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful moment when there in our hands is that whole project that we're given so much time and energy to. See, the project of becoming what we thought it was the world wanted us to become. And in the presence of this apocalyptic revelation, it looks like what it really is, and she lets it fall to the ground. It's a beautiful moment. It's a horrible moment. <coughs> somebody Tuesday night said, every, uh, somebody Tuesday night said, when I read this story, I got sick at my stomach. And of course, I've read it a whole bunch of times, and I kept getting sick at my stomach in different places. But consistently, it was at this place that I was most deeply moved. Because look what happens. John Wesley caught hold of his father's hand as they're heading towards the woods with these two killers. Now, until that moment, there has not been in this story a single reference to genuine human solidarity. Not one. And it's in the presence of that apocalyptic shattering, the, apo the apocalypse means the rending of the veil, the, the revelation of what is. Until that apocalyptic shattering, uh, it, it doesn't occur. But when, it ha when, when faced with that uh, crisis, they begin to reach out for one another. And so the boy reaches over and takes his father's hand. And his father turns and says, I'll be back in a minute, Mama. Wait on me. So the son takes his father's hand, and the father turns around and says to his mother, Mama, in the presence of this thing. And then you just have the misfit and the grandmother. I just know you're a good man, she said desperately. No, I ain't a good man, but I ain't the worst in the world neither. You know, Daddy said, it's some that can live their whole life without asking about it, and it's others has to know why it is, and this boy is one of the latters. He's going to be into everything. I keep raving over little parts of this story. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. The grandmother noticed how thin his shoulder blades were just behind his hat because she was standing up looking down on him. He didn't have a shirt on. And, and, and he has little thin shoulder blades that he see, she sees on the other side of his hat. Now, you know what shoulder blades are, don't you? Is this only a southern thing? They're wing buds. They're wing buds. So she's looking down. And she sees 
Remember, this is a big, round, black hat. That's, that's how it manifests itself, as the black hat. But she notices now, just on the other side of the black hat, wing buds. Remember Peter in the, in the Christopher Fry story when the Nebuchadnezzar and his aides came. Uh, he said, oh, here comes the monster. He says, I can believe anything except the monster. It's here to kill. But the world comes up even over the monster's back. And the grandmother looks over this monster's black hat and sees wing buds. Every devil is a fallen angel. Dante, you know, said there's only one force in the universe, love. Every vice and every virtue comes from that one force. So she looks over the black hat and sees the shoulder blades, the wing buds, and she says, do you ever pray? He shook his head. All she saw was the black hat wiggle between his shoulder blades. No, he said. No, he said, no, ma'am, I don't, I, never, I don't pray. And two pistol shots are heard in the woods. Now, that is a very powerful piece of writing. She sees what she's got to touch. She's got to touch that, that angelic part, that part in him that is not the misfit. She's got to reach in there somehow and get hold of that. And she has to look over the top of that black hat to even get some hint that it might be there. And she says, do you ever pray? And he says, no. And her son and grandson die in the woods. I was a gospel singer for a while, he said. Just in case we missed the point about every, every devil is a fallen angel. I was a gospel singer for a while. I've been most everything. Been in the armed service, both land and sea, at home and abroad. Been twice married. Been an undertaker. Been with the railroads. Plowed Mother Earth. Been in a tornado. Seen a man burnt alive once. And he looked up at the children's mother and the little girl who were sitting close together, their faces white and their eyes glassy. I even seen a woman flog, he said. Well, he's been everywhere. This is really the, this is really the, the resume of, of, the, uh, of the demonic. He's everywhere. He goes everywhere. But he always shows up when, when men are burnt alive or women are being flogged. He's always there. He's always there. But he's got wing buds, and she hasn't given up on that. She says, pray, pray, the grandmother began. Pray, pray. He says, somewhere along the line, I've done something wrong. She said, what was it? He said, I can't remember. Once in a while, I would think it was going to come to me, but it never come, what I did wrong. It was a head doctor at the penitentiary said what I'd done was kill my daddy, but I know that for a lie. My daddy died in 1919 in the epidemic flu, and I never had a thing to do with it. He was buried in the Mount Hopewell Baptist Churchyard, and you can go there and see for yourself. See, the head doctor in penitentiary was a Freudian. He said, well, obviously, this guy's murdered somebody, but what he's really trying to do is kill his daddy. He didn't get the subtleties of it. 
when he got the basic pattern of it. See. So here we have the the psychiatric attempt to administer the sacrament has failed miserably. And this poor woman, uh, and the church's attempt to administer the sacrament has failed miserably. He was a gospel singer for a while, but uh, pretty soon he was recognized there as well. Sacrament's not breaking in on this guy. And here, there's only one person left to try to do it, and that's this poor grandmother who is ill-equipped by both training and temperament to administer this particular sacrament, but she's going to give it her best shot. If you would pray, the old lady said, Jesus would help you. That's right, the misfits said. Well, then why don't you pray, she asked, trembling with delight suddenly. I don't need no help. I'm doing all right by myself. <laughs> now, you see, when we hear the misfits say that, we know how ridiculous that is. But when we hear the Oxford Don say it, it doesn't seem so ridiculous. You know, when we hear the captains of industry say it, we don't even notice it. Well, Flannery O'Connor is not talking about this poor guy. She's talking about us all. I'm doing all right by myself. He said. So then he says to the mother and the baby, uh, would you, and the little girl, would you go over in the woods, please, uh, uh, with the boys? And there's the grandmother and the misfit left. She lost her voice, all but lost her voice. She's trying to say something. She's so terrified she can't even speak. And she tries to force the words out. And finally they come, they just bolt out. Jesus, Jesus, she said. Meaning, Jesus will help you. But the way she was saying it, it sounded as if she might be cursing. Yes, I'm the misfit said, as if he agreed. Jesus thrown everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me, except he hadn't committed any crime and they could prove I had committed one because they had the papers on me. I call myself the misfit because I can't make what all I've done wrong fit what all I've gone through in punishment. And I think the next two things have to be if they were done on film, they would, uh, they would be superimposed. He says, Does it seem right to you, lady, that one is punished a heap and another ain't punished at all? And as he says that, there's a scream and a shot in the woods. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He's thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then there's nothing. Then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody, or burning down his house, or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. 
You know, Girard's analysis of the impact of the gospel on culture is that slowly but surely there are only two options left. Uh, what Jesus called the kingdom, world of love and nonviolence, reconciliation, forgiveness, or the apocalypse, a world of uncontrolled violence. And there's a little echo of that here. It's going to be one or the other. And uh, those who think they can have just enough violence to, you know, to kind of keep things going the way they're used to having it go are fooling themselves. Maybe he didn't raise the dead, the old lady mumbled, not knowing what she was saying. I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't, the misfit said. I wished I had have been there, he said, hitting the ground with his fist. I wished I had have been there. It ain't right I wasn't there, because if I had have been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, he said in a high voice, if I had have been there, I would have known, and I wouldn't be like I am now. Now, the purpose of the church, among others, is to collapse the time and space that separates the constituent events from anybody in history. The purpose of the church is to create a situation where you can be there, so to speak, where, you, where that constituent event becomes an experience. And, in, and here again, I think he's, he's, uh, he's pointing up the fact that the church has failed. His voice seemed to, about to crack and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry. So his voice cracks, his lip trembles, so to speak. He looks like he's on the verge of becoming vulnerable, and suddenly her head clears. And she murmured, why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Now, early on, she said, I recognize you. You're the misfit. He said, yes, and you recognized me like everybody else in the world. But here's where she really recognized him. This is the real recognition. This is where the, 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 the veil is, is torn. And she makes the sacramental gesture. She reaches up and touches him on the shoulder but it comes too late. There have been too many people have recognized him. But lying dead at his feet, her face was smiling up at a cloudless sky. In that recognition, she discovered life. 
take her off and throw her where you've thrown the others, he said, picking up the cat that was rubbing itself against his leg. So this is little pity thing. This is the little sentimentality. This is that little sentimental thing, rubbing up against the leg of the one who who carried the other side of the of the projection. The little cat gets to carry the the little sentimental imagery, and the misfit has to carry all the dark stuff. And they belong together. She sure was a talker, wasn't she, Bobby Lee said, sliding down the ditch with a yodel. She would have been a good woman, the misfits said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. I said, as we began, that um, two ways of trying to get through this shell that uh, we tend to surround ourselves with. One is... Uh, a regular exposure to an eye-vow encounter or a liturgical environment that would slowly dissolve it. Uh, and the other is uh, a, a calamity that might befall us that shatters it. But there might be a third, uh, and maybe it has something to do with what we do here, which is uh, to submit ourselves to this kind of uh, story and take it and deal with it in a serious way. So, with that in mind, I'd like to quote to you something that Kafka said. He said, If the book we are reading does not wake us as a fist hammering on our skull, why do we read it? So that it should make us happy? Good God, we would also be happy if we had no books. And such books as make us happy, we could, if need be, write ourselves. What we must have are those books which come upon us like ill fortune and distress us deeply like the death of one we love better than ourselves, like suicide. A book must be an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside us. This concludes Reflections on a Good Man is Hard to Find. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.